Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm Craig Settles. I'm your host today, and we're here to get um, broadband and telehealth everywhere it needs to be. Today's topic is telehealth and broadband integration, uh, specifically how communities can drive broadband adoption faster and more cost-effectively when we get constituents to focus on their health and medical care. Um, we have two broadband pioneers with us today uh, who each have a uh, telehealth program that will, I believe, significantly impact their respective communities. Um, first is Deb Sosha, who is the president and CEO of the Enterprise Center in Chattanooga. And later in this show, we have Matt Larson, who is the owner of the wireless ISP, this theme. Uh, Dev, let's talk about let's talk about the Enterprise Center because some people may not be aware of what you do. Sure, uh, the Enterprise Center uh, actually works really hard at the intersection of technology and quality of life issues. So whether it's helping mm-hmm. folks use technology for a job or for learning or for telehealth, uh, we provide uh, 15 hours of training, a device, and assistance to sign up for the low-cost plan that's available to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has been obviously increased during the pandemic, and I'm thrilled that people finally recognize it for the issue that it is. Excellent, excellent. So now what um, are the main elements of this pilot program for telehealth? And also, what are the main uh, digital equity and healthcare goals for the project? Sure. So the project is going to bring a variety of resources to a beautiful but under-resourced neighborhood of Chattanooga. It's called Orchard Knob. Um, and we received an award from the Tennessee Valley Authority Um, to work specifically with residents and a bunch of different organizations and the Park Ridge Medical System to identify needs and bring resources around specific social determinants of health. The neighborhood has really high levels of diabetes, stroke, heart disease, asthma. And so, you know, some of the things that we're planning to do through this grant is we're going to place some indoor air quality sensors, we're going to add public Wi-Fi. We're going to ha- add the TechGo's home component, which is the home access, digital skills training and devices. We have some home energy upgrades and smart thermostats and more. And mm-hmm. what makes this project most especially exciting for me is that we, Park Ridge Medical Systems has provided a 1,000 free telehealth appointments for folks in the neighborhood. Because what we're seeing is that Uh, While many of the people in the neighborhood work, they don't work at a job where they get health care, and they make a little too much to get on the the, uh, state health care system, and so they're kind of stuck in this quagmire, and they really can't approach the kinds of health outcomes that we would love to see because they just don't fit in that niche. So we're really hoping that we're going to go into the the community and help them 
mitigate social determinants of health so the health outcomes improve as a community. Um, I want to uh, look at this issue of uh, the, the social determinants of health um, because people who are in the broadband world may not know what that means, but it's critical to solving various issues related to telehealth, uh, to, well, telehealth, but also just healthcare in general. How would you describe right. that? You know, I think everybody's got a bit of a different idea of what it is, but for me it is a lack of access to resources caused by a certain issue in the community, whether that issue be transportation. So we did a big piece on, the, on um, public transit over the summer, whether it is air quality, which can be a problem here in Chattanooga because we're kind of in a valley, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it is uh, access to healthcare because they have insurance, uh, good food, fresh fruits and vegetables, opportunities to be physically active in the community, all of those contribute to um, outcomes within an, within a particular community. And if I'm un, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, when you address healthcare issues, you sometimes have to go beyond what people might think about as just the, uh, you know, the doctor's visit, right? Because yeah. these elements, these different uh, determinants, like the food, for example, um, if people mm-hmm. don't have good, healthy food and they can't get to it quickly, um, this will in inhibit the success or the full success of the program. Is that correct? Right. Because I think of it this way. If you are living in a community that doesn't have easily accessible and inexpensive public transit, and the only store you can walk to is a Dollar General, you're going to have a very different meal plan than someone who can go to the farmer's market, right? Right. So Mm -hmm. ensuring that we have ways that folks can get fresh, uh, both vegetables and fruit and dairy products, I think we really need to think about how we are connecting folks to those opportunities. Right. Because I would imagine that if you had a, a bunch of planning folks, including broadband planning folks, they the, the broadband folks may not be a, paying attention to that part of the discussion, but it is very critical if the if the objective is the success of the program, right? Right, and you know we we're pretty lucky here in Chattanooga because we have municipally owned broadband uh, mm-hmm. in the form of our electric power board (EPB). They provide both electricity and broadband, and they have a real connection to the community. And so they really want to invest in the community, and they are investing in this neighborhood through this grant as well by providing free public Wi-Fi and some public spaces and also by doing some energy upgrades in the homes that are struggling to stay cool in the summer and warm in the winter. Mm -hmm. I would say that um, the caring nature of EPB is a determinant of the success of PPB. Ah, I will not get this right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but when we're looking at all of these dollars being spent or planning to be spent 
for broadband. Um, I'm assuming that the success of the broadband deployment is going to depend on the the you know the caring nature of company uh, cities such as Wilson and uh, Chattanooga and, and Danville, where this um, you know they go this extra mile, but this is what you're going to need to get success with your broadband deployment. Right. Correct. Yep. yep, we've had, you know, looking at the variety of spaces of, across the country that are trying to plan projects like this, it certainly is an advantage to have community-owned broadband. It just mm-hmm. makes the process much easier because our goal is not different than EPB's goal, right? EPB it cares about the health of our community, and that is the same thing that the Enterprise Center wants to work on. And so that doesn't always happen with a different ISP. Mm-hmm. So now, is the planning for the telehealth project, uh, is this part of a bigger uh, planning exercise? It, it actually is. Um, and it's interesting because Orchard Knob had a pre-existing collaborative of which the Enterprise Center, PB, and a bunch of other organizations were a part. Mm-hmm. And when the grant came available, we actually already had that network and that collaboration in place, which made it much easier to create a grant of the the size that we are currently working on. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, um, you know, we probably have lots of people in various communities that are familiar with grant writing for broadband, right? But when we're talking about um, broadband as an enabler for telehealth, do you think there are um, elements of the grant writing process that will be somewhat different than the grant writing process for, you know, your typical broadband deployment? Yeah, I think it's different. I think the the anticipated outcomes are very specific when it's about social determinants of health. I also think that, you know, the the process of creating a project that involves telehealth is a much tougher ask, right? We're not just mm-hmm. walking in and putting in broadband. We're walking in putting in broadband for an outcome. And what uh-huh. that does is allows us to um, leverage other dollars and leverage other partners, which means we'll have a much better outcome. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of those uh, partners? So, basically, like, who are you going? Who are you going? Are you going to bring to the table for a typical telehealth program? At least from your perspective. Well, in this case, we have a wide range of partners. So. Certainly the Orchard Knob Collaborative, of which we are, this group is a part. The Electric Power Board, our EPB, Energy Upgrades and Public Wi-Fi. Green Spaces, which is another nonprofit here in town. And they're working on indoor air quality and smart thermostats. Uh, Habitat for Humanity has some HVAC systems that they can replace, Mm -hmm. some other upgrades for folks. And we are doing the Tech Goes Home model. Uh, with folks there. We're also the project management team. And then Park Ridge 
medical stepped in with its um, thousand telehealth appointments. I think it what makes this work so well is we each have a niche where we know what we're doing, we're successful in that space, and together we'll have a much bigger outcome than any of us could have had individually. So the bottom line would be that um, in the front end of this, you need, all right, community needs to um, bring all of these different um, entities to the table that we shouldn't have a, you know, have a situation where we're creating silos, but we're creating, um, we're breaking down the silos and making everything work uh, together, which, you know, I know some of the, uh, some cities, uh, both small and large, this can be mm-hmm. a problem. If they're politicized, if they've got issues and all of that kind of stuff, that you have to be careful how you exercise bringing these people coming, to, uh, bringing these people together. But it seems like you can't be as successful if you don't bring those people together. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, understanding that digital uh, skills training is not the expertise of EPB or of Park Ridge Medical. And understanding mm-hmm. that broadband deployment and telehealth are not our forte, knowing that we can do this together and bring about a much bigger outcome for the community is really the the best part of this project. Excellent. Now, um, in the beginning, who were the community or the types of community folks that were brought together? to say, hey, we have this vision or we see we have this technology, you know, called telehealth and we think it can make a big difference. But who from the community sort of, you know, have to be brought into these kinds of discussions to ensure your success? Well, you know, the Orchard Knob Neighborhood Association uh, was original one of the original members of the collaborative, as was Park Ridge. And so Park Ridge has been very forward-thinking and very creative in thinking about how they exist in the neighborhood because they are actually have uh, facilities in Orchard Knob. And they've done other things to make the community better, like they have taken down the fences and made their green space available, put in basketball courts, things that they see as ways to help mitigate these social determinants of health. And the community organization, pretty much since I've been a part of this, led by Marvin Noel, who is now a city council member, really has been uh, bringing together the community and saying, where are the issues we need to address? Habitat for Humanities has been working in the neighborhoods too. A lot of the housing stock is older, and so being able to upgrade means people can stay right? And if we can decrease the cost and increase energy efficiency and give people a more healthy quality of life, a healthier air quality, then we're making a big difference. But it really started with those two and other groups joined over the course of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I love Park Ridge's vision and I love the energy from the neighborhood around really pushing all of this work forward. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think about the what I call the unofficial leaders, the, you know, the barbershops, the pastors, uh, the local um, uh, uh, grocery stores and so forth. How, how do you bring them in and how do you keep them uh, motivated? Well, you know, I think there's a, a really, um, one of our difficulties in our neighborhood is there really isn't great grocery stores available there the YMCA comes in with a mobile market that has fresh produce and I think that's really helpful but we do need to work on the availability of healthy quality food in the neighborhood Um, I think folks joined in because we have a vision for this work and because we believe that we could do one neighborhood at a time Uh, typically our grants are uh, spread across a very large area. This one is very focused in one neighborhood with multiple resources, and all those resources together uh, will help us bring that neighborhood up to a healthier standard of life. And so, and through this process, we also plan to uh, write a toolkit so we can re- replicate it in the next neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. We already are getting questions from other neighborhoods like, when are you coming here? And that's lovely. Um, mm-hmm. It means that there's there's really an appetizing community to make change. So the um, you know this element of bringing the next town in, the next county in, um, does that increase the likelihood of a grant being del- you know delivered? Because what the grant uh, sources would I assume would see is that this isn't just something for you know one neighborhood in Chattanooga. This pilot represents uh, changes that could go down you know all the way down to the you know the next county. <clears throat> we, we certainly hope that's the case, um, and you know the the fact that we will have a roadmap for doing it is helpful because this is not something that we've seen done in Chattanooga yet. Um, and so I'm really curious about how it's going to go forward. For sure, we are going to have our share of, of uh, struggles because we have so many people, so many organizations participating. Um, and the other piece that makes this an interesting one is that we are not telling folks what we're going to do for them. We are asking them, we're saying we have these resources. How can we be of assistance? And so, you know, our first effort will be a large community conversation where people tell us what they need from us. Um, too often I feel like we go into a neighborhood we don't know and try to make change when, in fact, it should come from the people who live there. And so we're, we're really pushing on that idea. Not every funder wants to allow for that level of creativity, and I'm very thankful that the Tennessee Valley Authority is giving us that uh, that permission to really make it driven by the neighborhood. I want to ask, uh, Deb, um, what are some of the challenges that you see with getting all of these folks together once you get momentum going? Uh, what kind of challenges do you see as far as uh, the you know the organizational of this 
because I have to give some insight for other people, other communities that might want to do the same thing. So, you know, one of the big challenges is when you have this many partners working on the same project, right? We've got the Enterprise Center, Habitat for Humanity, Green Spaces, Park Ridge, and more, right? So Park Ridge Health System. Wrangling a lot of partners can be complicated. Uh, I will say that the advantage we have on that is that we worked collaboratively as a team prior to receiving this grant. So we all know each other. We trust each other. We have shared expectations and beliefs around this work. I think that helped with that challenge, but it's still challenging. And the second one, I think because we are focusing on allowing the residents to guide the path and the process, we have more uncertainty than an organization generally does with a grant the size, right? So we're not defining all of the rules and, and ways in which this will work or the timeline. We are working with the community who will guide us to do as they would like us to do. So while it's the right thing to do, <laughs> to encourage the residents to really be in charge, mm -hmm. uh, it is slower, messier, and less easily defined. So that's a, a, a challenge that I'm looking forward to learning through because I think this is going to be something we'll want to do more often. Okay. So you envision being able to pull disparate groups together in the same fashion. So do you expect to do more um, elements of telehealth in, uh, you know, in the, in the next year or so? I mean, yeah, it, it, there will be a lot more telehealth in the upcoming year. Uh, the provider is Parkridge Health Systems. Mm -hmm. They actually have a, they have, are located, one of their um, health system buildings is located right in Orchard Knob. And so they have been working with the community for a long time. So they are a good, strong, established and trusted partner. Mm -hmm. um, and so with a thousand telehealth appointments, we imagine there'll be sort of a trajectory of this, that it will include some help uh, to sign up for the low-cost programs available for the families, mm -hmm. that our project that goes home will train them in how to engage in a telehealth appointment, and then Parkridge will come in with the opportunity for folks to connect. I think mm -hmm. there'll be a lot more telehealth appointments in Chattanooga next year, and in particular, uh, being able to provide this resource in a community that has not been well-served in the past uh, I think is a really great place for us to start. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on um, health and human services? Uh, the reason I ask is because they have a huge budget and about well, right around the time of the pandemic, they actually hadn't become involved in a lot of uh, telehealth. Now, I expect that to have changed by now, but um, because that would be another uh, funding source, I would imagine, as well as, you know, the FCC's money and the uh, Department of Agriculture and so forth. Um, what what uh, do you think about that? Those dollars would actually have to be applied for and brought into town by the, the health system, by Park Ridge. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we would be happy to support that process, but it isn't really our grant or our process to create, right? Got it. Okay. Um, but they, the nice thing about Park Ridge and Tom Osborne, who is uh, the CEO there, they are, are really on board with this idea that technology could be a great game changer mm-hmm. for folks who, who are experiencing the, the after effects of social determinants of health. And uh, I, I think it's going to be much more available than it ever has been in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of technology, um, what are your thoughts, or maybe actually what are your, some of your, your ideas for using uh, communications technologies to help keep all of these groups together? Yeah, that's, you know, good news is there is technology that can help with that. And the other part of that is that we as a group really do have a shared vision and we have this established group of collaborators. So we can more comfortably use online collaborative tools so we can co-plan, co-create. We will have a local splash page for all of the community members that will have community updates and that splash page will come up when you, um, when you launch the um, the free public Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. um, and we have we have online and paper applications, so there's lots of ways in which technology can help us with that. We're also imagining there'll be a lot of Zoom or hybrid meetings uh, during any high COVID transmission times mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of folks. And I mean, always having that option, I think, is important. Because if we, we, we do have a lot of folks who are older in this community and they may be homebound. And so we just want to make it as possible for them to participate as we can. And part of that will be us teaching them how to do this as part of our Tech Goes Home course. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'm really excited about learning more about is the medical technology that can help keep docs informed. Ah, like the ones okay. that, that can check your heart rate, that can check your blood pressure, uh, that can that can help to identify problems that are currently existing, elevate those concerns and address them so they don't end up being a crisis, right? right. So, you know, of course, we're hoping we can reduce the rate of returning to the hospital after either surgery or a crisis as well. And those technologies hold great promise for helping us to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, or actually a better question, um, what advice would you give a bit, you know, similar size uh, community, right? I mean, this is a, a, a thousand uh, uh, people that will be affected, so it's a pretty large uh, project, project. What kinds of advice would you give a similar size city for how they could uh, maximize the um, effectiveness of the communications that that goes on between these different groups? No, I think every, first I'll say it's going to be way more than a thousand people impacted by the grant, just it's a thousand telehealth appointments. Oh, right, right, yes. There are a lot of other projects going on. I think the idea that we can provide folks with uh, technology as a tool to leverage is really helpful. 
Mm-hmm. I would think that other communities could easily do that, whether it's ACP or ISP low-cost plans or whatever it is that they can bring to the table. Um, but I, I, I would say the most important part is not necessarily the technology. It's the relationships that need to be built. Uh, so for yeah. example, okay. right, if I were going to go into a community in another city I wouldn't automatically go straight to City Hall. I would go to uh, a CDC, right, Community Development Corporation, mm-hmm. or a local neighborhood watch group or a local neighborhood community group and really want to start there because that should be where the vision comes from. Um, and then bringing partners on board that, one, the community already has a relationship with and trust. And two, they're already working in that neighborhood, right? So mm-hmm. thinking about how we get to that place where we can move forward. I think one of the groups that, and I, I mention this quite often, but I, I think one of the groups that folks forget to bring to the table are the faith-based organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is a good place to, to build trust um, and work collaboratively in the community. Great. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I have one last question to, um, to send this on our way here. Um, the, um, the ACP, the um, Affordable um, Tech- Connectivity uh, Program, um, I've noticed lately there seems to be uh, maybe a stalling of getting the program Getting to where it needs to be. I mean, you got about a thousand. Uh, thousand. You have about um, twenty, maybe thirty percent of any one community or state that has, uh, you know, that number of people enrolled into the program. But this is basically three or two times as many folks that are not um, part of the program. Is there some advice that you would? Um, uh, offer for how maybe we can accelerate the numbers because it's a good program. You know, I think you, telehealth is a great way to use the um, the uh, the ACP program, but can we get some like oomph behind these numbers? Yeah, interestingly enough, um, a dashboard was released today that shows each state and the percentage of eligible people that have signed up. Mm-hmm. That is helpful to motivate folks, especially with some kind of coordination and support through the state. Right, okay. I, I think ACP is essential. The issue is it's not a no-brainer to sign up. Like, it's a hard yeah. to get through the program. <laughs> Depends on who is signing up, right, and what mm-hmm. the potential barriers might be. So I am thankful to hear that the FCC has has decided it's important to fund the local organizations that are working on this issue. So we have, we have great folks at at the Enterprise Center who are working on uh, getting folks connected in the community and also training other organizations, team members, uh, so that they can help as well. So that's all really uh, a very helpful part of the process. I do think that the more coordinated we are, the more we are talking to each other, the more we are sharing resources and opportunities, uh, the more people we're going to sign up. 
Right. Uh, I would say it is easier in it is easier to get folks signed up like in, you know, Chattanooga itself is two hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Going out to some of the more rural uh places in the county and the surrounding counties is a little more difficult. Um, because there isn't that sort of confluence of of organizations and people in a in an individual space. Mm-hmm. So it takes a little more effort. I think all of that is important. I do think marketing this program is important as well. Not everybody in, feels confident when you say something is at no cost to them, right? <laughs> it's free. Yeah. And, yeah. and especially when it is government supported, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about how we can um, leverage stories of people who have already signed up, it's, it's like everything else. There are always early adopters, and there are always more reticent adopters. And we have gotten a lot of those early adopters already signed up, and now we need to work on bringing in that next level of folks. Great. This is, uh, you know, this is a great um, finale to this interview because Matt is going to talk a little bit about the rural areas and so forth. But, Deb, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be with us and I wish you much luck with the uh, the projects because obviously there's like so much going on there in Chattanooga, and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, to be able to circle around in a few months and come back and see how things are going. That would be great. Thanks for inviting me, Craig. Our next guest today is Matt Larson, who is the um, owner uh, operator of Vista Beam. And he's been in this business for a while. So it's great to have uh, a knowledgeable person to talk some more about telehealth and um, and what it means in rural communities. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Looking forward I, to visiting. Yeah, it's probably actually back again, um, which is good because you're always my go-to person on many things rural. So, um, so for the audience folks who um, may not know, what is a wireless ISP and why are they crucial to bringing broadband into uh, rural communities? So wireless ISPs typically are using some kind of fixed wireless technology to deliver broadband uh, and the thing that's really important about wireless ISPs or WISPs, as they're kind of commonly called, is that they tend to fit into areas where there hasn't been either areas that are very, very either unserved or have been very underserved by uh, regular ISPs. And mm-hmm. that's how a lot of us got our start, especially in rural areas. You know, I, I started out in a rural area where there was uh, very, very little or no access to broadband and basically just started building out from there and going into places where uh, there was demand. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a couple thousand other operators like me all around the, the United States, actually all around the world. Uh, there are places in, uh, there are places in the world where fixed wireless is actually has higher market uh, penetration than anything else. Um, but it's, it's great technology. The, the best part about being a, a WISP is it's kind of a regulatory bypass. You don't have to deal with a lot of the things that have to do with right away 
And uh, a lot of the other roadblocks that incumbents typically put up to try and keep competition out. And, uh, you know, the technology is very inexpensive and flexible and able to be deployed in places where uh, most other options are either uh, just it it's going to take too long or it just isn't economically feasible. So I, I think WISP play a really important role in uh, addressing the digital divide. I, the best characterization I've heard in a while is the new uh, WISPA CEO, David Zumwalt, basically said, we're the first responders on the front lines of the digital divide. Interesting, indeed. Now, one of the things that has always, um, you know, caught my attention about the WISP is that um, – if you want really good service, right, you have a company where there's not a whole lot of people between the executive and you, the customer, because I think that when I look at all the different WISP I have met in time, um, you know, they run lean operations, but they are severe, intensely um, customer-oriented and I think that that's what you need, especially in the rural areas, because there's just so much with the terrain and support working against you that having a group of folks who will go the extra mile in my book is a big is a big deal. Oh yeah, I mean that's one of the things is that uh, when you with uh, generally don't have anything given to them, so we kind of have to earn everything that we get mm -hmm. and taking customers or taking really good care of customers mm -hmm. is the best, best way to uh, basically to get and then keep somebody is by treating customers with respect and uh, trying to meet their needs. Number one, uh, you know, th this is something that's been going on when I, when I first started uh, my first ISP in 97, uh, the local ILEC had about 40 or 50 local employees, like within mm -hmm. a, within about a 30 mile mm -hmm. radius. And they were kind of a vital part of the community, uh, you know, taking care of telephone service, building, uh, you know, they, they, they did, uh, you know, high end communications between, you know, hospitals and towns and selling business phone systems. And, within about six, seven years, they ended up just being gutted. So now you have all these empty central office buildings and just a skeleton crew of people that are assigned to cover this huge geographic area. And they just gutted it. You know, when, when uh, bigger corporations came around and started buying up uh, some of these rural ILEC operations, uh, it, they just took people out of the communities and took away the support, everything turned into a call center. If you wanted to get some help, it just got to be a longer and longer wait because there were fewer service people. Uh, and the I, I think companies like mine really stepped into that void and, to provide that service that basically was taken away. You know, you used to be able to get pretty good service from the phone company and it just got, you know, maximized for profit and minimized for service. And I think that's, that's, you, you see a big difference in that. I, I know I, I would, I, I try to treat customers the way I want to be treated and, mm -hmm. you know, to, you know, I, I want to have a sustainable business. So we want to charge a fair price without being uh, extravagant about it. 
and balance it out by having enough people to actually take care of the customers. That is really, really challenging thing to do. But uh, we've reached a point where we've, we've kind of gotten over the hump. And I know my company and there are many other companies like mine uh, around uh, the U.S. and around the world that have made that step beyond that struggle of being able to try and take care of everything to, to reaching a point where we're taking really, really good care of our customers. And I think that's WISPs that make that jump, I think are going to be very successful. Gotcha. So now there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of talk uh, from people who probably haven't thought about broadband, you know, before the pandemic. Um, When you got a broadband network, right, you have the cables and the modems and the routers and so forth. But I sense that there's more to a successful broadband deployment, uh, deployment uh, than just the, the physical wires. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, uh, broadband deployments have a life of their own. Um, there are, are so many different circumstances that uh, come into effect, you know, demographics of the area and the people that you're serving. Um, what kind of resources are available uh, when you're doing uh, fixed wireless, you kind of can put together this hodgepodge of different things. You know, we have, we have gear on towers, we've got gear on water tanks, grain elevators, that sort of thing. And it all kind of customizes to the community. And that, that kind of makes every, every deployment kind of have its own life. You know, we, we can offer, uh, you know, higher speeds in certain areas because we've got access to middle mile fiber. Uh, recently, we've seen the cost of, you know, 10 gig fiber backhaul drop down to a, a pretty reasonable range. So we can really start pumping out some good speeds to end users. But then there might be, you know, another place 100 miles away where uh, getting fiber is, is not feasible. And, uh, you know, we have to use other methods and may not be able to carry quite as much capacity into a place like that. Uh, so everything's kind of different. And then it, the customers are a little bit different, too. Uh, we serve, you know, everywhere from people way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, might be on a fixed income and have limited uh, capacity on what they can what they can afford. And then we've got other people that are in, uh, you know, other areas that have, they, they don't care. They will spend whatever they want to get the very fastest and most reliable internet that they can get. And so we have to kind of tailor everything. Um, the one thing uh, that I think comes up is, and I'll go back to like respecting the customers, is you really have to develop that relationship with the community. And I think good broadband deployments and companies are the ones that aren't afraid of competition and work to build a positive relationship with and respect their customers. Uh, you know, the bad broadband deployments are the ones that maximize profit and strive for monopoly with a uh, little regard for their customers. So the, that's, that's, I think, you know, the, the soul of a broadband deployment is right there basically in that relationship between uh, the company and the customer and using whatever tools are available to try and, uh, you know, provide the service that's needed. So now if we're talking um telehealth right we're basically talking about uh there needs to be 
some players in there who are probably not familiar with broadband, but um, in, in, in general terms, why is the quality, well, yes, how, you know, why is the quality a big deal if you're providing uh, telehealth services? Well, I think telehealth, it, it represents this, just a tremendous amount of potential utility and value for broadband deployments. Um, but it is, as it stands right now, it's very underutilized. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, the need for quality broadband basically comes back to, for most telehealth that we're talking about right now, is going to be the ability to provide uh, a decent video stream between uh, the doctor and patient. But to really get it to the next level, I think we're going to have to come up with some kind of a telehealth killer app or uh, device that is going to be able to collect information. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate here. This is based on some things that I've read and stuff that I, I'm not an expert on. So take that as, as you will, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've, you know, got the Fitbit tracker and used to have a, you know, scale and some other devices. We've got some like small scale devices that are able to report back, uh, you know, some data uh, with regard to it's, it's more for fitness than telehealth, but you could see that there could be a jump made to where, you know, if we had device, a device that could sit at the, at a customer's house, that could collect, you know, metrics for fitness and metrics for health. That's where I think the real big benefit of telehealth is because telehealth's biggest uh, advantage, I think, would be in helping uh, helping detect preventable things from happening before they happen. Right, definitely. And I, I, I've read some stuff about some attempts to do things like that. And... Um, I think that that would just be fantastic if there was a way to, you know, if you had a machine that you could, you know, check in with every morning to be part, you know, you go in and you, you stick your finger in it and you stand on the scale or whatever, put a couple like, I don't know how I'd put the helmet on. I, I, don't, I don't even know <laughs> what the machine would look like, but if, if you had a way to go in and that could check vital statistics and look for markers, and then, and then that you could interface that with uh, your health professional to be able to look at a trend. That's one of the things we, we have all these things that we use to look at and mm-hmm. monitor networks and we can see, we start to see issues before they come up so we can plan ahead. Uh, if we had a telehealth device or some kind of an application and collect this information and have it available to us as patients, but also to our healthcare providers, that's where I think we would start to see some huge, huge benefit from telehealth. What's crazy about that? I don't know if that necessarily, that device may not necessarily need to have uh, like a super high capacity connection either. I don't think that's the sort of thing it's going to need hundreds of megabits worth of capacity. So I I think having a, having a reliable connection that uh, you know, devices can communicate on, I think is probably more important than having gigabit 
you know, to deal with it. So I, I think mm-hmm. that to really make telehealth work, I think we're going to have to have some applications like that uh, to use what we already have as existing broadband uh, and then go from there. Right. So now every state is in the process of developing a digital equity plan. Right? That's a big focus of the government. How important is telehealth or how important can it be to the success of a digital equity plan? Well, I, I think my, the way I think it would make sense would be to start out by focusing on getting telehealth into some of these smaller communities to at least a location where people could come in and access it and then be able to uh, be able to kind of develop some trust and some familiarity with the process. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I think we're going to need to have facilitators. Um, You know, the the phrase digital navigator has come up recently. Uh, Uh And I think, you know, we need facilitators that can help people access these these resources along with that killer app or a set of standard applications for telehealth, like I was talking about. Um, We need that to build that critical mass and the network effects to really make telehealth be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, the other issue, and the reason I think we need to have a human component in there, uh, the facilitators and the navigators, um, is this needs to go beyond just an app. Um, communities, especially a lot of rural communities, have trust issues with government programs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a certain amount of shame in asking for help. And a lot of people are a little bit too proud to do that or just don't know how to do it. Um, So we need to figure out how to make it more open and to have a human element to be like, it's okay, come in. We are here to help you sort of thing. And then uh, I think there's a need to coordinate scarce resources together uh, to get maximum effect for it. Uh, One of the things I found is when we start talking about uh, a lot of these social issue things uh, and digital equity is just digital equity is just one component of a giant ecosystem of social services that mm-hmm. uh, you know good societies use to help take care of 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 people and there is a real lack of coordination between a lot of these resources. So I think figuring out how to kind of provide that focus and make sure that there's ways for people to understand where to go, uh, it's, it's confusing <laughs> at times uh, to, to try and figure out how to, how to navigate a lot of those things. So we need to figure out how to kind of coordinate those resources together so we can get maximum effect. Yeah, and then especially when we start talking about uh, technology in a general sense, but then talking about technology that will have a specific uh, function that is an important one. I mean, if your heart pacer uh, craps out on you, life can be a little rough. So having that uh, reliability, the part that you talked about earlier, um, and the navigator provides a uh, the human aspect of the um you know, the whole program of reliability, I would think. Yeah, I, I mean, and it's not 
we're not trying to replace a doctor or anything. It's just to kind of provide somebody that can maybe, I think it's going to be important to have somebody that uh, people in the community are receptive to that they can go to with questions. So you can ask questions without, without judgment or without, uh, you know, any, you know, the, in, in a situation that, that, that people trust and, and with, with, uh, you know, a high degree of integrity. Right. Right. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And that sort of, it seems to be the, the idea that is driving uh, what you are calling uh, community empowerment centers. What, what is this about? And uh, how does it fit in that old idea of, um, you know, helping people, in a in a not in a non-judgmental way. So, we've been working on this community empowerment center idea, and the the root of it was this desire to develop a closer bond with the communities that we serve. And it's really important to have a presence, as much of a presence as you can have, in a community. Um, and you know that's that's something I think most ISPs. Uh, struggle with mm-hmm. and this is one of the things that we thought we could do it's like well, what could we do because we have uh we have a, a little bit of real estate we've got some buildings where you know we've got shops that we've got uh our technicians working out of and uh, a couple of them have like empty office space up front or have office space and we you know people are in there some of the time and and not the rest of the time and so we're like, well, let's let's use this space to do something productive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we looked at there. There are plenty. If you look at like cell phone companies or mobile phone companies, you know, they have uh, they have locations in a lot of these places. And they're generally, you know, they have some sales people there that are barely trained to kind of read from a script and show you what phones are available. But there's there's a presence, but it's uh it's a minimal presence and it's very focused on sales. And so we wanted to try and come up with something that was, could partially help with sales, but could also just help the community in general. So that's where we decided to try and figure out a way to train, uh, train people to be digital navigators and to be able to facilitate. And what we want to try and do is to be able to provide help with the, the number one thing is the affordable connectivity program. You know, there's kind of a process to go through that to qualify yeah, for and, it. And it's a little confusing for people. So we're going to train our people to be able to walk, walk somebody through the process of qualifying and find out if they can, and then get them, you know, if they, if they want to get a connection that we can uh, get them hooked up, you know, our distribution participates in ACP. Uh, we've been promoting it almost exclusively for the last two, three months to try and get the word out to make sure people know about it and, you know, even push it with our existing customers so they know that they've got some options. So ACP is a big thing. We're also a Microsoft Airband partner, and Microsoft has all kinds of digital skill training that is available. So we've been trying to kind of make that available. And then we put in the idea of kind of providing this facilitated telehealth and the idea is that we're going to set aside a room, a private room for telehealth consultation so people can come in and there'll be a private room where our facilitator can come in and make sure they get hooked up and then leave the room and let them you know, have the rest of their uh, appointment. But they'll have a good 
you know, broadband connection that uh, with a video feed and privacy to be able to have their telehealth discussion there. And I work trying to do that to make it so uh, to kind of build that critical mass, you know, putting telehealth facilities at every person's house. That's a, that's a big ask and it's a long ways out. We should probably start by having one available in the community and see how it works and work through some of the, you know, whatever the glitches are going to be in doing it. Um, but that's the, that's the idea is basically to make it so that, uh, you know, digital resources are going to be accessible to people. We'll have a few workstations set up to where if somebody needs to come in and fill out, you know, paperwork online uh, for government programs, that they'll have a place that they can do it. Um, there's still a lot of people out there that their only way of getting on the internet is through their uh, mobile phone or going to a friend's house, you know, mm -hmm. to do something. So being able to come into a place where, you know, here's an internet connection, here's a computer, and we'll have somebody there that hopefully can help answer questions. The other part of it is we're going to try and train our, our digital navigators to be able to know what other community resources are available to refer people to. Um, we're not going to be able to solve every problem, but we hopefully we can help point point somebody in the right direction for help with whatever, whatever they might need and take care of all the digital uh, equity things that we can take care of on our own. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, was having a conversation earlier today, and uh, I, I brought up this idea um, of having people knowledgeable about not only the technology, but as you mentioned, you know, there are other uh, elements of the community so that when people can be directed to other folks, then that gives the, uh, that community person, you know, the really good feeling for, um, you know, for the technology. It's almost like, you know, you're working off, working out, working at, in the, door, you know, the outside to come in on the side door um, to where ultimately when they're done, um, they will hopefully have more comfortable uh, comfort with being able to, uh, look at new technologies and other aspects of, of telehealth and also other options for, you know, just getting money and financial support for telehealth and broadband within a community. So, you know, what the library might do or what uh, the, the city council might do and so forth. So it, it, it's all part of a whole, you know, a bigger whole uh, picture than maybe just selling someone their internet connection. No, that, that, that's exactly it. And um, <laughs> as important as the internet is, there's a, um, there's a, I'm, I'm going to give you an example of something. Um, I, 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 just to emphasize the connectivity between people. Mm -hmm. um, I used to say that my grandma was a, uh, she was like a primary node on the Elder.net because it seemed like she knew everyone. But I, I literally one time uh, I was on a, uh, I, I was on my on a on a trip, and I had a problem with my vehicle. I had a had a suburban and I had a trailer behind it, and I, I was we were supposed to be playing a band gig in this town, and uh, I was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and and my starter quit working or I, I couldn't get couldn't get it to start. 
And my grandma just happened to call to check in. And I, she's like, where are you? And I was like, well, I'm here. My, my truck's broke and I can't, I'm supposed to be in, you know, this other town tonight to go play this gig. And she's like, where are you at? I'm, I'm here. And she's like, she's like, all right, stay there. I'll call you back. And she called me back five minutes later and she knew somebody within 10 minutes, a guy showed up with a pickup truck hooked up <laughs> to my trailer and took me to where I needed to go. And it was just somebody that my grandma knew and she made a phone call and he was right there. And so that, that connection is you, you don't Google that, you know, <laughs> You, you need to have like the build these, uh, build these uh, connections between people. And we've lost so much of that. We have all these tools to build connections. And a lot of times it gets used to divide people up for the purposes of marketing or lobbying or forwarding political, uh, you know, political objectives. And I think trying to build, I, I just want to try and figure out how to build some more human connection between people in these communities and be able to, you know, help people out at a more, uh, more direct level than uh, just trying to figure out how much more profit we can make out of a, out of an area. I agree. I mean, I totally agree. I think that, um, you know, one of the conversations I had with a person at the uh, NTIA, the, the, uh, the agency that's going to be doing or managing the $45 billion program and stuff, and I said, well, wouldn't it be really good, rather than just have consultants come in and help people, you know, build a plan for their internet and so forth, but to actually teach the people in the communities how to do uh, various tasks, such as uh, doing a needs assessment. What kind of needs do you have now that we have this program had uh, put in place? So we basically, what we're doing is we're building an infrastructure that is a social infrastructure as well as a technology um, infrastructure. I don't know, that may be strange, but I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I've served on uh, our economic development board here locally, and it seemed like every every five years or so, we would hire consultants to come in and they would help build a vision of what we needed to do and et cetera, et cetera. And the last time we had consultants come in, uh, you know, they like, you know, they take every, all the board, okay, what do you think we really need to have? And the first thing I said, well, I'll tell you what I think we need to have. We need no more consultants. We know what our needs are. We know what needs to happen. Uh, we just need, a local organization to step up and figure out how to address these issues and do a regular self-assessment and continue to handle this. We don't need, I don't need somebody from out of town to come tell me what our issues are. You know, I've had how many consultants drive through the town and it's like, Oh, you got a bunch of broken windows here. You need some more businesses. You think, well, of course we need some more businesses, you know, to come in and do this. It's like, how, what's the, what's the plan to actually make that happen? So I'm, uh, I've done a lot of consulting myself and the best part of the consulting gig is when the people I'm working with have enough skill or have developed enough capabilities. They don't need me anymore. And right. instead of trying to, what we need to do is to figure out how to 
build a culture of resiliency and independence to where communities can develop the the capacity to handle these issues on their own and to recognize and to uh, continue progressing and maintain that progress and marking that progress over a long-term period of time. Uh, there's just too much of this stuff that feels really uh, short-sighted and not planned out very well. So, you know, I'm sorry, I, you, you got me on the soapbox on that one, but uh, that's all right. That's, I, you know, but I think that's a that's a viable um, uh, approach because you know consultants are basically, I mean, and I am consultant, right? So I know what we're talking about. Right? We bring in and we come in and we say, you know, hey, this is how you should do it, right? But like Deb says, um, you know, that's not a good service for the community. If you want to build a good service, you know, if you want to build good uh, telehealth, right, you need, I think, to figure out how to um, train people that live there, because I mean, if you have a heart attack, you know, you really want to have people that are kind of like near and dear to you, then, you know, because the consultant is going to be there. Yeah. So, you know, but I think, you know, and then this is the last, I guess the last comment, or I want to get your last comment, but, you know, as we look at all of these billions of dollars do we are are we running the danger of um, you know getting to the other side three four years and say oh we did this wrong you know it's just like oh you know is that is that a danger for us for this well, yeah. I think for one thing the other side is probably more like ten twelve years out mm-hmm. um, anybody that thinks we can address all of our digital divide issues within the next four or five years. No way. <laughs> I mean, in fact, from what I've seen, the big federal programs, uh, we won't even see money flowing for probably another uh, another two to three years. Right. And especially when it comes to, uh, you know, a lot of the fiber-based networks, uh, you know, that stuff takes a really long time to get built. So I think we still have a 10, 12-year, it doesn't matter how much money we throw at it, there's just not enough. There's not enough labor. There's not enough material uh, to go out and address all of this in a short period of time. And I think that's what people just don't realize. You know, I, I built a fairly large business. Yeah, we cover we cover a huge geographic footprint. It's taken me almost 20 years to build that. Um, you know, to go out and and build all this infrastructure is is a huge lift. So, you know, I I, I think that. Uh, um, trying to figure out how to meet needs now and then work our way through some of these, some of these other issues is really important. Um, some of the risks that we run into right now, all this money that's coming into broadband, uh, I think there's actually some massive negatives to it that nobody talks about. Um, Whenever you have a federal program that's putting money into an industry, you immediately see costs go up. So we've got supply shortages. We've got labor shortages. Um, we've got people lining up thinking that, oh, there's all this money here. So this is going to be a huge deal. 
it's it's going to hurt a lot of operators. You know, we've reached a scale where we can we've been very successful participating in some of the government programs, but I don't know that we're necessarily going to a we may not be able to participate in some of these programs because they're going to have requirements and scale things that are going to make it very difficult for us to participate. Uh, or B, we're going to get uh, uh, run over by somebody else that gets gets a bunch of money to basically overbuild us. Um, and I, honestly, I'm not scared of getting overbuilt. I mean, I'll, I will give up my customers. Uh, if, if somebody's providing a superior service and taking care of customers, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop them, but I'm not going to roll over and play dead uh, right. either. <laughs> uh, and you know. and that with that, um, uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, and I definitely look forward to having you back on the show as we move through all of this craziness and all of this money. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to, it's going to be crazy. That's for sure. Um, all right. Well, thank you again, Matt. I appreciate your time and your insights, and thanks a lot for, for, for being here. You bet, Craig. Thanks for having me.